So I'd like Daniel and the rest of you to turn to Daniel, <laughs> chapter 3, verse 14. Daniel 3, 14. We are going to read to verse 20, so can you stand with me? Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what god is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Look at verse 27 now. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair on their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, begin the new year um, with not knowing fully what's ahead. We have, we've made some plans in our own minds of what life's going to look like, but we never know what's going to come upon us and uh, what kind of ordeals and trials we're going to have to face. We pray that uh, this message today would be a rock in which we could stand moving forward going into the new year and that this would be a place we could come to whenever we have to face difficulties. Uh, we are all going to have to face them in various forms and in different uh, severities and so this message is applicable to all of us from now until the day we meet you in glory. So uh, we just uh, ask that your spirit would go ahead of me and the congregation and Bring truth to light, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's uh, good to be back preaching again after a break. Happy New Year to all of you. And um, for a while I was contemplating what the first sermon of the New Year should be. Should we continue in parables? Should we start a new book in the Bible? Should we do some topics for a while that would be fun to cover? Like, uh, is, is New Year's resolutions biblical? <laughs> if so, uh, what, what's God's mandate on those? But I decided to do something different. Based on what happened last week in last week's service. The, the theme that emerged from last week's service was that many of you had gone through different challenges and trials in 2019 and encountered unforeseen uh, things in your lives that you had no idea were coming and took you by surprise. At the same time, the theme that emerged from that was that God was faithful in all the things that you faced and uh, there was hope in Him. 
and he met your needs in ways that you're not expecting. So I began thinking, well, as followers of Christ then, we declared last week that we know he's faithful to us in the midst of trials and temptations. But what does, a pro- what does a, an appropriate faith response look like from us to God? Faith is a two-way street, right? It's his faithfulness to us, but it's also our faithfulness to him. So if we know he's a rock in the midst of trials, what faith does he want from us? What does he want from our lives? What kind of expression would he want from us that would show that we are faithful to him? and giving us the strength and fortitude to face the things that we're going to face. I thought we could learn uh, from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today of the what kind of faith is pleasing to the Lord. What kind of faith is pleasing to God? Because in times of discouragement and, and tough circumstances, it's often easy to want to give up and pack in the towel, or throw in the towel, I should say. <laughs> Got to get my uh, cultural... Any of them is correct here. So. All right. Well, let's give you the first context of uh, the first. Give you the context of this book and the passage in particular. The book of Daniel occurs with Israel in Babylonian captivity, and the reason for their captivity is that God has used Babylon as an instrument of judgment over Israel for their constant rebellion and disobedience against them. For centuries, they've been engrossed in idolatry. Uh, sexual morality, they've been oppressing the poor and the needy, and they've been unwilling to administer justice in the land. And despite multiple warnings um, from the mouths of the prophets who God spoke to, um, they wouldn't repent. And so God brought calamity upon the people. And through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Israel was brought to its knees. The temple was destroyed, the city of Jerusalem reduced to rubble, People lost their lives in huge numbers, and those who were dis- uh, survived were displaced. By the end of the siege and, and movement into exile, only a small remnant of Jewish people survived. Now amongst this remnant was a group of young Jewish men, uh, probably teenagers, that Nebuchadnezzar quickly had his eye on. These were handsome men, intelligent, and they were known for being wise. And he thought if he could train these young guys uh, and assimilate them into Babylonian culture, he could put their skills to good use and have them serve alongside him and govern the empire. And so what he did was he put these men in a three-year intensive program to learn the Babylonian language literature and even change their names as part of the assimilation process. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, But that's not the names they went by uh, as they lived in Israel. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 7 quickly with me here. Chapter 1, 7. It says here, The commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, uh, Abednego. Now, uh, my commentary from John MacArthur proved helpful in this. this these name changes reflected uh, a connection to the local deities, the Babylonian gods as opposed to Israel's god. Um, Hananiah meant the Lord is gracious, but his name was, was changed. Um, uh, yeah, his name was changed. 
to one of the, uh, the, one of the gods of um, Babylon, Aku. Uh, Mishael, whose name was who is like the Lord, was changed to, changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah means the Lord is my helper in Hebrew, but it was changed to Abednego, the servant of Nego. So Aku and Nego are the Babylonian gods. But as I mentioned, this three-year training period was to educate and assimilate them into Babylonian way of life so they could serve alongside the king and govern the empire. And this came to fruition. Look at chapter 2, verse 49. 249, and Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was in the king's court. Now, this is important to notice their positions of authority and influence and how much they've risen up the ranks from being uh, in exile, like sort of slaves, to governing Babylon, based on what happens next in the story. You see, the king that they're serving alongside and underneath his authority decides to make a monumental decision. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he makes an image of himself. An image of himself sets it up in a geographical location in Babylon where he gets the most exposure. It was a plane. A plane. And secondly, he demanded that it be worshipped. He demanded it would be worshipped. Now this wasn't just any image. It wasn't one that you could fit in your pocket or one that you could hang on your car mirror you know, as you're driving down the road. It was of immense proportion. It was 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide, according to chapter 3, verse 1. That's 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. So 90 feet tall. I mean, um, if, you're, if the average... Uh, well, the basket, a basketball hoop is 10 feet, and most of you can't touch the rim. Imagine nine of those stacked on top of one another. All right? Now, this is overlaid with gold. And what's important here, two things about this image, is what happened if you didn't worship it. You were to be executed. Verse 6 of chapter 3 tells them that you were to be executed. Though even more interesting to me is how the time of worship was declared. In verse 5, whenever music played, it was time for the inhabitants of the land to bow down and worship. And in this case, uh, they used like um, uh, horns, flutes, lyres, you know, bagpipes and all sorts of instruments to create the atmosphere to worship. Well, when I was in, t- in Israel, and Laurel was there too, uh, I got to experience something that I'd never experienced before. And uh, it was, we were in the city of Jerusalem. Oh yeah, and Galen Harvey too, of course. I'm just so used to having just Laurel and I being from there, but uh, you're, you're there too, good. So all four of us were there. If you remember, the call to worship for the Muslim time of prayer would bellow through the land, through the city of Jerusalem. And the way they would do that is not through music of a, of a pipe or so, but it was through the voice of an of a, a imam or some kind of a Muslim leader. And I, it was a very eerie sound and it pierced the air and the whole city could hear it. And I found a clip that I'd like you to watch to hear what it was like to be in the city of Jerusalem and it covered the entire, the entire area. Listen to this. Oh darn it. Forgot I have to plug it in.
Anyway, you get the idea. Unfortunately, I forgot to plug it into that speaker, but that, remember how much that bellowed through the city? And it's an eerie sound, isn't it? It's like a, it's, that's a it disturbed my, uh, my soul, actually, just to hear that. But um, regardless, uh, that's what it was like in Jerusalem, and that's what it had been like in Babylon, something like that, where music declared the time to worship, you know. But, just like I had no inclination, nor did Gail or Harvey or Laurel, to bow down and worship the God of Islam, <laughs> neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have no inclination to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 8, a report gets back to the king that these men, who were his right-hand men, hadn't bowed down to him. And he get, a report gets back to him, and when he finds out Nebuchadnezzar's irate, and verse 13 actually describes him as being in a rage. And so that's where we pick up our story now in verse 14. Our reports come back. They haven't worshipped the golden image. They won't respond to the music. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is fit to be tied. So let's read 14 together now. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Neshadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? The answer, of course, was this was true. They hadn't. And the reason was because if they were to bow down and worship this image as Jewish men, they would violate the first commandment that Moses had passed down to them in the wilderness. You shall not have any gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Now think about this. Why were these guys in exile in the first place? Their number one reason was they had committed idolatry. So if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's ludicrous to bow down to this image. The very reason you're in captivity in the first place is because for centuries you've been doing this. And now this new guy, this king that's taken you to exile, wants you to do the same thing all over again. So these men knew that God already had proven that he took idolatry serious. And they knew the ramifications. They were in Babylon in the first place because of idolatry. At the same time, these men realized that Nebuchadnezzar also took this seriously and a refusal to obey would have meant the loss of their life. They were to be executed. Now, as I was thinking about their situation, although this event took place 2,500 years ago, you know it's a still very relevant situation for many of God's people today. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ still live with the reality under the tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar-type rulers with Nebuchadnezzar-type ideologies. In the, state of, or in the, pro, or the country of North Korea, it's led by the Kim family. Uh, the, the current leader is Kim Jong-un, but his father was Kim Sung II. They have an ideology called the Juke ideology. It's the principle that man is the master of everything and therefore decides everything. So Canada has a Juke ideology. It's basically another form of atheism. But if anyone rebels, rebels against the Kim family in any way, or hints of any disloyalty, they're executed. And North Korea is known for being full of hard labor camps. And hard labor camps is basically a cruel way to die. There's, there's no expectation you're gonna come out. You go in to work, your, work to the bone with little food and lots of persecution, and you will die there. It's interesting, even in North Korea, there's idols set up of the Kim family that people can come to worship. This is a picture 
of, uh, of, the, the, of the Kim Sung II, the father, in uh, North Korea and look at the people before him. That idol isn't even 90 feet tall. That Nebuchadnezzar's was, was bigger in height than this one. In China, it's very similar. The only difference is different ideology. The Duke ideology doesn't rule, communism does. And idols are set up in strategic parts of the country of Mao Zedong, the, form, the, the one who founded communism in China in 1949. And people come to worship there, him as well. Here's a statue, 30 meters tall, so 32 times 3.3 feet is, about, a, is a hundred, about 100 feet. So this gives you an idea of how big Nebuchadnezzar's um, image was, except this guy's way wider. That's in the province of Hunan in China. And people can come and bow before this idol of Mao Zedong, who brought in communism. This is, and anyone who opposes him, his ideology or communism, is executed or persecuted. That's why the Christian church in both North Korea and in China have gone underground. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. That's so true that even though 2,500 years ago God's people faced persecution under Nebuchadnezzar, it's the same reality in countries throughout the world today. And I wouldn't doubt if in whatever years, maybe 20, 30 years, there's a statue of whatever prime minister or whoever we have in our country mounted and we'll be forced to do the same thing. Now it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar could have had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego executed immediately. It, 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 I mean, it, wasn't, it, it was a known fact that these guys hadn't bowed down. He could have given them further opportunity. But in verse 15, it's revealed that he was willing to give them a second chance. So he said this to the guys. Now if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? It's interesting that by Nebuchadnezzar's own admission, the situation these young men were facing was impossible. There was no God that could ever help them out of the situation. According to his understanding of religion and, and spirituality and stuff, their fate was sealed. But what's interesting is the response to the king in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Now, the, these men weren't being cheeky by saying that. This was just the stark reality. They were basically facing the same situation that Roger spoke about to us a few weeks ago regarding the believer's responsibility towards government. It's true that God's people are always to remain subject to the governing authorities that rule over them. We're to obey the laws of the land and pay taxes. When the, when the buck stops here, when you draw the line, is when the governing authorities over you tell you to sin against God. When they make it, they mandate it that you rebel against God. At that point, you choose God's way and you have full right to disobey the authorities above you. And this is, of course, what Nebuchadnezzar was asking of them. So there was no answer needed to be given. This was a no-brainer to these young, these young boys. But I want to point out something that's interesting that you'd want to see here. 
Notice it's not wrong for these men, or even sinning, or God didn't disapprove of, the fact that they learned the Babylonian language. These guys learned a, a pagan, secular culture's language. Um, they learned their literature. In chapter 1, you can see this. They studied the literature. In other words, they would have studied, studied how to govern Babylonian people. That would have been different than the Mosaic Law. They would have studied the religious texts. They would have learned about the deities and the gods and, and supposedly how they uh, worked in their society. It wasn't wrong for them to study other people's religions. It wasn't even wrong to work as government officials or serve under the pagan king who used taxpayers' dollars to build an idol. But this may even shock you more. Look at 3.3. Look who attended the dedication of the idol ceremony. The satraps, the prefects, and the governors. Remember what it says in 2.49? These men were appointed administration over the province. These guys are governors over the land. These men were there at the dedication of the image. They haven't sinned. They might not like what they're seeing. They might not agree with what they're seeing. They're not in any way in God's bad books. This is super important because sometimes as Christians we get our, our arms all up in air over all the ungodly things and the, what our government's doing and we want to protest and picket and, and do all sorts of things. These, they're, they're, it's, uh, there's no way that we should be doing any of that stuff. Yeah, if a petition comes across your table you know, against abortion, sign it. But don't make a big spectacle on social media and go downtown Calgary and, and be one of the ones holding a sign disagreeing with something. We're to leave, leave our, leave our, live our lives in tranquil quietness. These men, again, attended the ceremony of an idol being put up and watched taxpayers' dollars going to be put up and no way were they ever considered in a sinning situation. The issue, though, for them was that the authority they were serving under had asked them to sin against God and His Word. And so they drew the line in terms of obedience. So for us, if we're in situations uh, or our boss asks us to do something that we don't like, we do it. Because we're to submit to our authorities. But if it ever violates God's moral law or the teaching of Scripture, our allegiance lies to Jesus Christ. And they don't have to be all life and death situations. So if you, you know, things like if you're ever asked to lie on behalf of someone above you, you don't do it. If you're asked to steal on behalf of your authority, you don't do it. If you're asked to cheat on, a, on a behalf of the authority, you don't do it. If they want you to come in at 8.45 and you think that you should be coming in at 9, you do it. It's possible one day that our government will require of me as a pastor to do and say things that God's word will condemn. In cases like that, I will have to disobey. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be prepared to face any consequences that may come upon me. But here's the key that I don't want you to miss. For this. this is where I want to spend the rest of the sermon because this is really what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about how they responded in faith. What kind of faith they demonstrated to such imminent threats. 
and what the substance of their faith was as they faced such a difficult trial. Look at verse, we'll read verse 16, 17, and 18 together. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In order to face trials, like said Meshach and Abednego, I suggest there's two important things we have to understand. One, we have to have the right perspective on God's character. If you want to make it through temptation and please God with your faith, you have to have the right perspective on who God is. Number two, you have to have the right perspective on how, what God's purposes are for you in this world, in this lifetime. If you get those things wrong or off kilter, you will struggle to be loyal to the Lord. Let's look at gaining first the right perspective on God's character. Did you catch the key words that these men said? He said, he is, he is able to do so. He's able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't. In other words, these men believed in the ability of God and the power of God to be able to deliver them from imminent death. But at the same time did not presume that it was a guarantee he would do so. So they, they believed in the ability of God and the power to deliver and perform a miracle, but at the same time did not presume that it was a guarantee that he would do so. Capable? Yes. A sure thing? No. Now this flies in the face of many Christian circles. That doesn't sound like men of faith to you, does it? Well, I have a powerful God, but he may, you know, I don't know if he'll act or not. A lot of people think you can't give God the option not to act. You ha- in order for healing to occur and miracles to take place, you have to, with all your heart, soul, and mind, believe and have faith that he will do it. If you doubt in any way, it won't happen. That's the power of the faith healers. If you have faith, it'll be done for you. With the faith, I should say, faith with that doesn't doubt. Or doesn't question God's power and things like that. Or his, his willingness to act. In fact, this kind of belief is necessary for, for God to work things out in your favor. But when we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't think that way. They knew God had the ability to perform a miracle. But they didn't presume on that power and that ability. You know why this is so important, church? Do you know that these guys are listed? Like, uh, uh, their, their story is listed in Hebrews 11, chapter 34, uh, or Hebrews 11, verse 34, as being pa- uh, men of faith, as an example of faith. So the kind of faith that's an example in the Bible that is godly and pleasing to God is one that believes in the ability of God to do something, but doesn't presume that he will. They're listed. Check this out. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched raging fire. Uh, before this quote, there's a list of men and, uh, and so on that who, who experienced these things. 
These three boys quenched raging fire by this kind of faith. They remained completely devoted to God, knowing he had the ability to do it, but couldn't presume that he would, or wouldn't presume that he would. They weren't naming and claiming anything. They were believing in the ability, but preparing that there was no guarantee. That leads to the second point in making it through trials and temptations. We have to, cut, we have to gain the right perspective on life and basically understand what God's purposes are. You have to gain the right perspective on God's purposes for your life. You see, as believers, our ultimate hope is not this world. It's not this lifetime. God has something greater in store for us in the future, and we are to have an eternal focus. And his primary concern is spiritual, not physical. Does he care about us? Absolutely. Does he, does he give us blessings in this world by, uh, that we can physically experience? Absolutely. But his primary concern is our spiritual condition and that relationship with him. I was reminded of this uh, when I was studying for uh, the sermons on Christmas. When the angels came to the shepherds, they said, a savior has been born for you today. That was, of all the titles he could have given Jesus, he says, a savior. A savior from what? A savior from sin. That's the purpose in his coming, to give you forgiveness so you have eternal life. It's not to set you up for this life here and now, it's to set you up for the life in eternity. That's to be in relationship with God forever. 1 Timothy 1.15, I was reading it this week. Here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only one and son, that he who ever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everything about the coming of the son is to do with eternity. Have a relationship with him here now, be forgiven so that you can't set up shop here on earth, but you set up shop in, in glory, which will eventually be on earth anyway, in the new kingdom, but you get the point. It's not about this life now, even though there can be blessings. It's about the life to come. Dick Lucas taught me this years ago. He said, Luke, uh, uh, salvation in the Bible is largely future. Those are exactly his words. Salvation in the Bible is largely future. Yes, we are justified now, we're declared righteous, but the promises of salvation that, are, that, we can, that we long for are going to be in eternity. That's why Revelation says there'll be no more tears and no more death and mourning in heaven, not while we're living physically here at this moment. Now the cool thing about their story is they were rescued. God did perform a miracle. In verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the, no fire had effect on these bodies, nor was any hair of their heads singed, or their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of the fire come even upon them. But this is amazing because these men had this kind of faith and they were still rescued. Regardless of the outcome, the key for these guys was this. In the midst of trials, they remained fully devoted to God. 
and were unwaveringly obedient to him, despite they had no idea whether he would rescue him or not. They really took Jesus' words to heart, even though they hadn't met him yet. 600 years later, Jesus was going to say something that these men had already come to grips with in their own lives. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These men knew exactly what was going on here. Again, be, be, listen to my words carefully. I'm not saying God does not care about your life here and now. I'm not saying that one bit. But what I am saying is that we have, when we have an eternal perspective, we can say in the midst of trials like sickness, health, and persecution, that while we recognize God is powerful enough to rescue us, even if he does not, we will not swerve from the left or right in giving him our full devotion, worship, or obedience. The primary concern is that we end up with him in eternity. So what can we learn from this message? We'll build from, we'll leave it, well, yeah. first one, uh, civil disobedience is permitted when those in the, sorry, that's a double sentence there. Civil disobedience is permitted when those in authority over us mandate we sin against God's word. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they learned the language, they would have governed the people according to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's ways, not God's in terms of like the order of the society. But when it came to sinning against God, they were going to rebel against the, the government. And that's the mandate for us as well. That's what goes on in North Korea, it goes on in China. Number two, as believers, we must be willing to accept any consequences that come our way as a result of our allegiance to Christ. These men knew that they were going to be thrown in the furnace when they decided not to worship. They knew that. But again, they'd watched history unfold before their eyes. God took idolatry seriously. They were in exile, for goodness sake, because of idolatry. <laughs> to bow down to this king would just, would just be redundant. It, would, it wouldn't make any sense. They didn't want to sin against the God anymore. They were fully allegiant to him. But the main point of the sermon today is uh, lesson three and four. This is faith that pleases God. When in the midst of trials, we choose to live in obedience to God's word, believing he has the miraculous power to deliver us, but with no presumption he will. So when I heard all your stories last week about how you've gone through stuff and how you're facing stuff, how do you express faith? that God will be pleased with. Well, learning from three, three men, it would look like this. Lord, in your prayer life, I believe that you have the power to deliver me out of this situation. I believe you can heal my sickness, cure my health, and, uh, repair this relationship, stop this persecution happening to me, this death threats, whatever. I believe you have the power to deliver me from all those things. But if you don't, you're still God, and I will not presume that you will. And this is important because what that does, if you understand this, is that it, your, your, um, your decision to obey him or not, or to give up on him or not, is not based on your physical circumstances here on this earth. It's based on the fact that God's people throughout history 
often weren't delivered from trials and suffering, but they'll still be in glory. They'll still be there. The key for us is to continue to be devoted to Him and do not swerve from the left and the right in our obedience to Him. And that's pleasing to Him. And finally, the key to persevering through trials in this lifetime then is to have the right perspective on God's character and His purposes for your life. If you get these things right, you won't swerve. If you get those things wrong, you will. The right perspective on God's character, He has the ability, but there's no guarantee. He never promised He'd make your heaven on earth. He made promise to make heaven in heaven. <laughs> Secondly, He never... Um, his purposes for this life are primary spiritual. Your eternal, your eternal scope, your eternal focus, your eternal life, and to forgive you of sin. That's his primary interest in your life. Because he knows that eternity is eternity. This life is 70, 80 years, 90 at best. So for the sake of a little bit of pleasure here now, for what you're going to gain in the future, for God, the focus is all about the eternal.